for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com For y'all planning your first ever elk hunt, man, do I know how you feel. I've been there. The excitement, the anticipation, and a lot of questions and unknowns too. Look, y'all, you're going to make some mistakes and learn a lot along the way. It's all part of the journey. But maybe, just maybe, we can share some advice and smooth out some of those bumps along the way. On tonight's show, our goal is to help you avoid some of those hard knocks and be ready to rock it out in 2020. Those topics, along with our Elk Bros shout outs and our EBD segment. So my friends, pull up a chair, adjust your volumes just right, and welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting, brought to you by ElkGrows.com, with your host Gilbert Ornelas and elk hunting coach Joe Gillian. You want to hunt elk? And they live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters. Hello there, everyone. If it's your first time with us, glad to have you. Hope you enjoy our show. And for those blue collar hunters following our show and grinding out with us every week, welcome back to Elk Camp. I'm Gilbert Ornelas, the host of your show, coming to you from Spring, Texas, and from New Mexico, our elk hunting coach, Joe Gillia. Hey, buddy, Gilbert. I was just thinking, bud, man. I got me a thought. Uh oh, that's dangerous. <laughs> the lights liable to dim around here. <laughs> I don't know, man. It just might. I was thinking, bud, for tonight's topic, dude, maybe we should try to get some help from someone just a little bit more greenhorn than ourselves. You know, maybe somebody that travels out of state to hunt elk or someone that's still on that steeper part of the learning curve, bro. 
I get you. Maybe <laughs> one of those guys that is maybe called in every cat in the neighborhood <laughs> trying yeah. to learn how to use a, a diaphragm yeah. call. Where in the heck will we find somebody like that at this time of the night, Joe? I don't know, man. Wait, wait, wait. Idea? I might just know, nah, it's a school night. His wife probably already made him go to bed. Ha, ha, ha. Look how funny, you know. I'm just glad you guys have really good content in your podcast because otherwise, not for humor, no, you would not have any followers. If it's not the leader of the Venezuelan mafia himself, Luis Gonzalez in the house. Hey, where's Thank you, uh, brothers? Okay, Mutt, where's Jeff, man? <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, not only do I travel out of state, I travel out of country to, <laughs> to hunt elk. <laughs> and it doesn't get yeah. as green as this, man. So, this is, uh, yeah, absolutely. You got the right guy. And no, I'm not in bed yet. Okay. So, <laughs> so for you guys listening out there and trying to catch on what's going on here, we have. Luis Gonzalez in the house, one of our brothers, uh, one of our Elk Bros brothers, one half of the Venezuelan mafia. I'm sure that uh, Manano is going to be listening to this, and 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 I sure hope Manano tutored this guy up some, bro. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, I got a lot of good content for this just from Manano. <laughs> okay, especially when you talk about mistakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I, you know, I I warn everybody um, when we start getting multiples here, it gets real close to elk camp you're really going to get the flavor here so no doubt guys guys though before we get off into that uh, joe you know what time it is bro you know oh, it's time for the elk bro yes sir new to our show these are just a few cities with the most listeners topping our charts this week Yep. Here And before I get going, man, I'm going to give a shout out. I had another review come in on Apple Podcasts. Rich, Rich, I hope I say this, man. And Gilbert, I don't know if they have oil there. Luis, you might have flown there, but it looks like Stylacum, Washington. Rich from Stylacum, Washington, but thanks for the review. And if I got that right. the Venezuelan, dude? I mean, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How about that, Manano? Can you pronounce Stylacum or what? Stylacum. Yeah, I like, I like the way you threw the um in there, man. That lived out good. I lived in Oregon, in Oregon City, which, uh-huh. you know, it probably is close uh, to that, but I don't know. Are you still wanted there? Probably. All right. So first up (laughs) in our shout outs, man. First up uh, is a suburb of Grand Rapids and home to David McIntyre. That name ring a bell with you guys? David McIntyre? Sound like a baseball name, huh? Right. Get this. And and this this is near and dear to me because I love this show, bro. He won $500,000 by outlasting nine other contestants and surviving for 66 days by himself on Vancouver Island on season two of History Channel's awesome survival show, Alone. Alone. And he's from Kentwood, Michigan in the house. Kentwood, Michigan in the house. Yep. Wow. Yep. I wonder where on in, yep. in Michigan he's at from where about in the state. That's how the Michiganders do it like this, Joe. Yeah, that's what you they were say, saying. Oh, down here, over here. Yeah. No, I have 
I yeah, I tell you what, man. I mean, uh, I, I know he knows something about survival, and hopefully that uh, you know that that's pretty incredible what that guy did. I got to watch that whole series there. I really love that show, and you compare it to a lot of those other survival type shows. Yeah, it's a whole different vibe, man. You know, it's that's pretty cool. cool how they do that's this. Cool. So. Cool. Well, next up, Joe, just five miles from our next city is a house originally built in 1836, known as the Old Bridge Inn. Residents know that the house is haunted by what people described as a kindly ghost and other spirits as well. Locals think that the ghost may be former owner Dr. Charles Hancock, a descendant of the most noted patriot with the largest signature on the Declaration of Independence. Who would that be? Hancock. John Hancock. (laughs) Yeah. This is in St. Matthews, Kentucky. St. Matthews, man. Yes, sir. You know, you you have one guy that wrote an incredible signature, and then probably his descendant, Dr. Charles Hancock, feels a doctor dude. I bet you couldn't even read that puppy, man. No doubt. (laughs) Especially the way doctor's signatures are and and scribe is that's for sure yeah no kidding you're up next luis yeah so part of the san antonio metropolitan area this area evolved from a rich farming and ranching tradition and is characterized by hot humid summers and generally mild to cool winters and if you go to the shrimp island sea house for shrimp gumbo tell them elbros sencha where's it at texas Live Oak, Texas. You ever been to Live Oak, Luis? No, oh, yeah. sir. I have I not. Have. Yeah, yes, Gilbert, sir. you have, huh? <clears throat> yes, sir. Yep. Yeah. Real place in Texas, boys. <laughs> you know, I think you could throw just about any name out, and it exists in Texas. <laughs> you know, as far as a city name, it might, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, Cherry Farm. I bet you there's a Cherry Farm text. <laughs> there might be, Joe. There might be something to Google up for our listeners, for sure. <laughs> Next up, Joe, right here is where Montana began. Yep, Montana. First permanent settlement began, began 170 years ago in this town of the Bitterroot Valley when, it, when an Italian priest founded St. Mary's Mission in 1841. You can still visit the mission today for an experience of the historical and so often magical past of Montana in Stevensville, Montana. Stevensville. Thank you guys for listening, man. The big sky country. Yes, sir. Montana. In fact, I was just talking to another Montanian uh, not too long ago. and We were talking about uh, the bears and, and the wolves. And I was like, you know, bro, is, is the bear problem like most people portray it? And uh, he said, well, you know, you got the Western, you got the Eastern. But he said, you go up solo up there in those mountains during the certain times of year. It's spooky. So I would agree. I would agree. I mean, they are the apex predator. Oh, yeah. Well, he said the wolves have gotten really, really bad there, too. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Colorado is looking at putting that on the ballot about, you know, uh, introducing the wolves in Colorado and horrible idea for their elk herd. I think they're making a big mistake. I, I looked at some numbers up in Idaho. Decimated it was just a special. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think in the three states, they were looking at their, that they figured that a number of wolves that those three states could handle were right around 1,000. Shoot, bud, there's there's over 1,000 wolves in Idaho alone. Wow. Yeah. You know, originally, Joe, they thought it was going to be a huntable population, but what right. they didn't figure on is how hard those animals are to hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are the hunter. And when they get to be hunted, you won't find them. Uh, I, that's the thing is that, you know, there's no predator for them. Uh, they only die of old age or another wolf attack. And they don't really do much of that uh, because there's so much territory for them to move to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the only way that you got to control the population is through, you know, uh, an open hunting season hunting. and nobody wants that. Uh, so these critters have, have really multiplied in vast numbers. And, you know, I was listening to a Texas game biologist said that one bobcat will kill 13 fawns a year. I mean, right. that's a lot of fawns extrapolated mm-hmm. out. Right? right. So a wolf is a giant animal. I mean, yes, it's sir. three, five, six times the size of a bobcat and I'm sure it'll kill a calf elk and a cow elk, you know, anytime it wants to. So when you got a thousand of them doing it, hoo buddy, you know, well, and you're not just talking, you're not just talking wolves. Now you're dealing with cougars, you're dealing with, you know, grizzly bears. So that's, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. And I mean, what what did your buddy say up there in Vermejo that the number one predator on the elk calf was a black bear? Correct. No, That's exactly no. right. If a, a black, black bear is going to get them, what do you think a grizzly bear is going to do? I do know in Idaho that I think you can get five wolf tags now oh, up good. in Idaho. And, and I think guys trap them. I think that's really kind of how they, they get after them because they're hard to hunt. They're not real callable either. They're very sharp. Last but not least, unless you're an old soul from the low country of this city, you might not have a clue what words are like Barrettwell, Baba. And Don, man, what Don means, that's because it's Creole language spoken by the Gullah people and African-American people living in and around Chaston, known by most of us as Charleston, South Carolina. All righty then. Yeah. I had no clue. Yeah. Um, that's Creole. It, Creole. it is. It is. past Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Heck of a deal. Yeah, they, they, they speak, uh, they have their own language there, um, and the Gullah people there, and that's from the Low Country. In fact, I believe in like 1939, it became the, the, uh, the language of the area of the Low oh, Country wow. there in the Carolinas. Yeah, so some pretty neat history there because a lot of the elders there in South Carolina are trying to continue some of that culture and teach that to their kids and their kids' kids. No doubt, man. And, and uh, thank all of our listeners for tuning in from, from our great cities around. Look, guys, we say this a lot, all the time. If you guys like what we do, please rate and review us. If you have any questions, want us to put them on the air and, and talk about them, uh, please go to info at elkbros.com. That's info at elkbros.com. Be glad to answer any of your questions. And uh, as always, go to Apple Podcast and rate and review. Just check us out on YouTube, and you can see a lot of content there. I love seeing all of these new cities and new towns, villages. I, it's so cool to see all of these names that are just running down our list every week. So, guys, it just it's so awesome to have you guys 
listening to what we're doing and having value out of that. And we so appreciate you. So do us a yeah. favor, spread the word, get it out there. No, no doubt. Yeah. Joe, I, I know you, you don't like to brag, but you sent me a number a little while back on uh, how many cities we, you know, how many places we're in. Well, what's so cool, bro, is we're right at that 4,000 cities right. in, in the United States, 42 awesome. countries, and we just popped over 60,000 listeners. That's uh, fantastic. Listens, I'm sorry, listens. Yeah, listens. yeah. And, and they do that differently than downloads. They do the right. listens uh, because I guess you can have multiple downloads of one thing there. So they, they have a different type of formula that they do it. So 60,000 for us, man, we're, we're crawling up on that big – 100k man that's going to be awesome you bet thank everybody out there for all of their support you bet you know joe i guess uh-huh. it's time for us to get started on our main topic you know yep. uh Luis, we're going to kick it to you and let's start with you brother what would you say was the one thing that was your biggest lesson learned starting out oh it, it thank it well first of all thank you for having me guys and and one of the things um, also, as a listener, I want to uh, make a comment about is that, uh, you know, you guys put all your podcast in your YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you guys are in for listening and watching Gilbert's expressions and, you know, and, <laughs> and, and uh, the dynamic of, of the laughs and the good times and, and the YouTube channel is a perfect way of doing that because you're getting the two in one, the videos on the on the on the podcast as well. I have, every time I get the chance, I'd rather do the YouTube than the podcast. But then again, you know, it's... Uh, I've had people say just, that, dude, and it worries me. You know how your parents used to tell you too much TV when you were a kid? Yeah. You no, know, I don't know, seeing too much of us, man, it could be a little brain damage yeah, there. So. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but no, uh, just I just wanted to make that little parenthesis. But look, um, it, it's so hard for me to answer that question <laughs> Uh, with a single liner because it's almost impossible, right? I mean, I just go back to the last four years that I've hunted with you guys uh, with uh, in public land with a bow, and uh, the list is way too long, right? I mean, you can – there are things about the equipment. There are things about the elk behavior. There are things about your mindset and your attitude and your preparedness. There, I mean, there are things about um, – Oh, did we lose him, bro? Looks like we did. Oh. <laughs> I do not yeah. know what happened with our brother out there. <laughs> Have some technical <laughs> difficulties. Well, you know what happened with that, man. It's, uh, I, I think the... You Mama know they have time the, for bed. The censorship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he's sparing you guys, man. Hopefully he signs right back in and we yeah. get him back here. We'll see what happens with that, guys. So <laughs> we, we we really wanted uh, Luis to be with us because just why he's saying is that Luis has been just starting this journey with us, right, Gilbert? So uh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've got about six years on him in front of him and you know, until we get him back, I guess one of the things I could say is your mental preparation and your physical preparation need to be on par, right, yeah. Joe? I yeah. think, you know, if you go back to some of our early uh, podcasts where we talk about mental fitness and physical fitness, I mean, I think uh, I think that's huge to go back and listen to those podcasts, right? But uh, for me, it was all about being mentally ready and me being uh, physically ready, which I wasn't. 
which I wasn't. So right. I can right. only stress to, you know, the new guys that are getting ready to go elk hunting is if you're going to hunt an altitude, you better be ready. Like, yeah, don't wait six weeks before you go to the hunt. Mm-hmm. You need to go six months before you go to the hunt. Yeah. the And, you know, yeah, we always tell people about how much they got to be in shape to be here. I mean, that the ground is a shape, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, that's one thing I wanted people to understand too, is you, people go out and they see all these different things and, uh, they see, uh, um, they go and see, you know, people on Instagram and people are doing all this, you know, where, you know, they're in the gym, they're cranking the weights and these guys are like physical specimens. And, you know, that's great if that's the thing that you're into, but you don't have to be like, you, no. that's not where you have to be with it. You know, it, I if, sure ain't, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sure not. And, and look, I mean, I got my own limitations, you know, right. I tell everybody, look, I got one speed, it's slow. And, uh, at the end of the day, I know what my limitations are, but you get me close to that critter and he is in serious grave danger. Right. You yeah. Know? So totally, I, man. I mean, at the end of the day, my skill set that has, been honed over the last 10 years. If I can get within 70 yards of that animal, he's in serious trouble. Luis, you found your way back, bro. Yeah, man. Uh, Super embarrassing. Never happens, but I just had a power outage and everything just went off and back on (laughs) in a split of a second. So you got to pay that that bill. (laughs) So what I'm going to, I'm going to take this back, Luis, where you started, man, because you know, what, what we had, started with is and the reason that i thought it was really cool to have you here is because you are you're the you're one of the youngest out of the group i mean uh i think manano's a little younger than you yes Uh, correct but he looks way older (laughs) (laughs) he just had a kid too bro (laughs) cutting a little slack Yeah. yeah, and I and I would pick on Manano about being the youngest, but I, I think Manano's killed two elk though. So, uh, <laughs> you know. yeah, yeah, but that doesn't count. That don't count. Right? It don't count. Yeah. Yeah. But so let's go back to let's go back to you, man. Let's start with you again. And you know, thinking back, I mean, you've been with us, like you said, now for four years, and right. you you started to have a, the question to you was, what do you think? what would you say is the one thing that you feel right. was your biggest lesson learned? Yeah. And again, you know, the, the, there's plenty of things uh, with all the things I mentioned, equipment, gear, behaviors, uh, personal behaviors and training preparedness, uh, elk behaviors. I mean, there's so many things to learn. Um, but I, I think reflecting back on it, uh, Joe is, you know, it's very easy to underestimate elk and, how majestic these animals are, how mm-hmm. big and intimidating they could be, especially when they get up close. And, you know, I've heard Gilbert say this uh, in his own words, but it's just like whenever they get in front of you and they scream at you and it's just everything you think, you know, it just goes out. You know, I think you're 100% correct. The biggest lesson I, that you could take away from this is, Forget everything else you learned because at the end of the day, you're going to have to relearn how to deal with these critters. Right. Yes. And it is unlike anything you've ever done. 
unlike any animal you've ever hunted. So, well, and you know, I don't, I, I don't want everybody to think that there's some kind of fictional, you know, fictional creature or something like this. It's just no. that you got to understand. And and Gilbert, you were the first one to say this when I met you, and when we talked about this, you guys hunt plenty of animals. Oh my and, gosh! And, yeah. and I remember you telling me, I mean, Joe, I mean, I've shot plenty of whitetail, blah blah blah, this that. But when you get an animal this size in front of you, be ready for that, guys. Understand that this is a large creature. Um, when you have one come in front of you and he starts bugling, it has that big old rack, uh, stay focused. Stay in your zone. I, we want you to expect that experience, but be ready for it. Stay in your zone. And then after everything is over, then you can fall apart. But Yeah, you know, it's really pay attention to detail. Focus on a spot on the animal. Don't get caught up in all that's going on. Because if you get caught up in it, it's just going to train wreck you, you know. Right. And and with regards to that train wreck, uh, Gilbert, I mean, the, the, the that's a perfect segue to my other comment is that um, that's the last thing you want on an elk hunt is a regret, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and the, you know, talking about mistakes and things that you may regret to me, I, I would, re- I regret bad shot. I regret missing a shot completely, you know, and uh, maybe in Even that though order, a miss is better than a hit. Absolutely. Yeah, in that order, right. because I mean, the, you know, like, like I've heard you guys say before, and this really resonates with me, you know, the best shot you take is the one you don't take. And the second best shot you take is the one you have a clean miss, you know, yeah. and, and that really resonates with me because that's something that even nowadays I struggle with in the heat of the moment, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, just, to me, those are the, the biggest things, um, you know, the, the, the how, how big these animals are. Um, do not underestimate their ability to, to, to run away in a split of a second, to be so athletic in a mountain that you can just completely see them in one moment and then not see them anymore. Forever. And that's a real good point, man, because a lot of people, when you see an animal this size, you kind of give them a sense of being a little bit lethargic, you know, mm-hmm. because people see cattle, they don't mm-hmm. move real fast. They move real slow. And, you know, you've had to experience that, Luis. I mean, you've had an animal that you've taken a shot at and the moment you took the shot, that, that critter spun. And so that nice, perfect spot where your arrow was headed ended up being a bad hit absolutely and and yeah it's a regretful moment right it's something that you kind of dwell on and you never forget and 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 the other thing is it's amazing how big these animals are and at the same time they can sneak up on you and be so quiet and if if you watch them walk through the woods and with their big antlers and and just graciously just avoid every little branch and the the places they can get through it's just like how in the world even tracking an animal how in the world did this animal get through here you know an animal that big so yeah and you people listening i want you to understand what he's talking about because we always tell you elk are big they're noisy animals but when a bull is coming in silent when they're wanting to scent check and come in silent to check a situation they are church mouse quiet man they yeah they they can they can come in and you know you're looking and you think nothing's there you stand up and you turn to your right and staring at you at 20 yards is a bull right there and you've said this before too joe i mean you you walk by elk to get to elk 
mm-hmm. most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to resonate something that Joe told me <clears throat> 10 years ago. Uh, my, on my first bull elk hunt, I experienced the same thing. I shot a bull high. They didn't find him for about six weeks. Uh, it was a giant bull, really beautiful bull. It uh, hangs at Ross Miller's house. Uh, but at the end of the day, Joe told me, he said, listen, when you get your first one, it's going to get easier. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, he was never more true about being able to close the deal. Once you figure it out, it gets a little easier. But, man, listen, you're dealing with a Clydesdale horse that's got antlers, right? And he is so agile and so majestic that you can get caught up in it uh, uh, really, really easy. And I think one of the biggest things for me too, Luis, was just you got to draw. You know, uh, when you're at, when you're archery hunting, uh, you have to get drawn. No yeah. matter if they're looking at you, if they don't don't draw behind a tree when they walk behind a tree, because when you do that, they're gonna stop with the tree in the kill zone. Let them get out in the open and draw your bow. Yeah. No. Just absolutely. That, uh, Gilbert, and also, you know, talking to Manano about the topic, uh, you know, Manano's point about what you guys have taught us, you got to sit, when you set up, you set up in front and not behind cover, you you know, with cover behind you, not with cover in front of you, um, because then that limits your point of being able to draw and, and, and have that opportunity and create that opportunity. I remember... You know, that uh, what happened with Manano in the perfume park. You know? <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, he, we, we had that bull. That was actually the first time that I, I started calling a bull with Joe. So Joe was calling the bull mainly, but I was helping, me, helping him wrecking a tree, and Manano was set up down in the park. And then uh, these younger bulls were kind of there, and one of them decided to start coming in. And uh, I don't know, Joe, that bull ended up being, what, nine yards? Eight yards. From, I stepped eight it off. Yards eight yards from, from where Manano was. Yeah. And Manano, there was uh, this dried up tree between him and uh, and Manano. And, the, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, he just, Couldn't he get was a full shot. draw waiting for the opportunity for that bull to step, step forward. He just stuck his nose up in the air, smell Manano's lavender, um, perfume that is very typical of Manano in the woods, and just took off running, you know. And uh, and that was another uh, uh, teaching moment for both of us too. Is he probably I, heard the shower curtain when he drew too? Man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. But but uh, the the other uh, teaching moment to Joe was he was standing up. You know, right. and, and, and normally in those woods, if you have those pine uh, style trees, it's always a good idea to kind of get on your knees because then you have a better line of sight underneath the branches. And if so he would have been on his knees, he could have. Yeah, and, and what I tell guys, look, whatever <clears throat> environment you're in, you got to match your opportunity to that environment. So here in New Mexico, a lot of Colorado, I'm not sure I, I have never hunted up in 
in Wyoming, Idaho, and those states. I, I've seen, you know, imagery and stuff like of those states. They're totally different. And then you get to Oregon. I mean, they're not totally different than us. They're different than Oregon. Oregon is so doggone jungle thick down on the ground. I imagine a person that got down on their knees to be prepared to take a shot would be totally lost and not have an open shot. But for us out here, our jack pines and a lot of our pine trees the, the limbs actually seem to start about four or five feet up on most of those trees. Mm. And that's why we kind of like to always be down on our knees if that's what's going to give us the, bet, the best uh, alley and the best uh, shot selection for a clear shot. But w- what I'm going to do, guys, is you guys threw out a whole bunch of stuff there just now. I mean, you, you talked about, because remember, what we're talking about is we're talking about some of the, the biggest mistakes or pitfalls that guys coming in for the first time, these first hunters, might come across. So I, if I had to paraphrase that, one of them is, is just understanding the size of the animal and be ready for that size of that animal, right? And I, I think the other ones kind of that you guys talk about are real common mistakes for a lot of guys that hunt whitetail and in other states. I think a lot of guys that come out to hunt elk bring a lot of those whitetail hunting habits with them, that style, their shot selection. And, you know, Gilbert, you've talked about this, and Luis, you've seen it firsthand. What can happen if you do not, hit these animals in the right spot because your shot selection has to be on. If it's not a white-tailed deer that you can blow through a shoulder. Mm-mm. No, they're hard, big, hard boned. Even their shoulder blades are like a rock. I mean, you know, if you don't shoot, especially if you don't shoot a bow like mine or yours or, you know, the Venezuelan boys, they shoot a, a hammer of a bow that's got some extreme KE kinetic energy. Uh, and if you're underpowered at all, you have got to understand the anatomy of that animal. And I can harken back to a really good podcast uh, that we did on yeah. on shot, shot selection, selection. And, and shot placement that is one of the very best. Uh, and then we lit it up this fall uh, with the amount of bulls that we killed and the amount of distance they covered, which they didn't. And that goes back to that comment I made earlier that was on YouTube. And the best way to actually enjoy that podcast is through YouTube because of the visuals and the graphics behind it. Yeah, we're not going to regurgitate that for you because it's already done. And I think we have it really done well. And understand that as big as these animals are, our goal, and in fact, we got T-shirts being made, y'all, that have elk bros on the front. On the back, it says two holes because... That That is our motto. You want to shoot that critter broadside in a location where you're going to get a pass-through. You get a pass-through. You double lung any animal, and they're going to be down in seconds. And four bulls taken in our camp this 2019 but died between 10 to 30 seconds, all four. And, I mean, we're talking we're graveyard dead. I mean, boom, <laughs> yes, <laughs> they're, sir. they're down for the count. So, uh, again, looking at that, some of those habits of hunting like a whitetail hunter, trying to stay quiet and trying to stay, uh, stealthy, not moving fast, hiding in stuff instead of getting in front. 
And, and I think that's what Luis was talking about. One of their biggest lessons, it's huge, y'all. You're only going to get so many opportunities. And yeah. if you do not put yourself in a situation to capitalize on that opportunity, it's going to go by. And that could be the one. Yeah. That could be the one right there. And I think, you know, when people ask about secrets, people, I think when they ask me, you know, what's our secret to our success? There's a lot of things you can say in a little bit different areas. But one thing I would say is, is that when we get an opportunity, when we get in the zone, we make it count. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot to knowing how to make that count there. And Luis, you hit one of the nails right on the head is make sure that you're in position that you're in front of things, you're not behind them, you know, make sure that if you have tree limbs that are at a certain height, you're down on your knees. I really myself like being down on my knees. I'm able to move, change my angle, do things with animals looking right over top of me. Have I killed animals standing up out of the critters that I've killed over the years? And there's been a few of them. I think I've only taken three animals in a standing position. The rest of them have been down on my knees. So, and and, and to add a little bit, uh, to add a little bit to that, Joe, um, you know, something I did as a rookie bow hunter in general, regardless of the animal, is is really understand the trajectory of your arrow because that's another thing. You know, just because you see it in your sights. Uh, especially longer shots, it doesn't necessarily mean that the arrow is going to fly straight through that pin where you have it. I mean, that arrow is going to go up before it starts going down to where that pin is on that animal. And uh, if you don't understand that trajectory, you're going to be hitting stuff above it and hitting limbs. And I've done that, you know, as, right. you know more times that I'll be proud to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, But that's definitely something now that before I take a shot, I think about that. You know, I'd say I analyze what's above me and where that arrow could hit, just kind of relatively knowing, depending on how far the shot is. Obviously, the further the shot, the the higher uh, the clearance you're going to need above you. Well, and it works just the other way, too. There's a lot of times people think that they're not able to shoot an animal because there's something in the way between them and the animal through the kill. And if you're a rifle hunter that's moving from the rifle to the bow, that might be something that just from shooting and shoot in all kinds of situations, shoot through limbs, you know, go to the 3d shoots, do the things that are going to help you have those real life situations and make that happen. So you're exactly right. That, that can be something that can, you know, take away one of your opportunities or make you scratch your head and you go, I never (laughs) saw that. And that happened this year on our hunt. And we did. had a, we had somebody in in our camp that that yep. tried to make a shot and end up hitting limbs and yep. uh, it it changes everything. Man. It and, and to, to echo, yeah, to echo what you said, Joe. You know, um, <clears throat> I've only killed one elk standing up, and it was this year. Uh, and look, I had to make a a movement to get a, a him in the kill zone right. just to get him down. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, when I drew my bow. He stepped into a zone where, man, he was covered by the kill. So I had to make my own maneuver to the left again. But if I stay just still, I may never get a shot at that bull. Well, you know, if I think about it, though, out of the four guys that killed, I think all four of us were standing this year. I think it was just that situation this year. Right? Yeah. 
Did right. you shoot from your knees when you killed that bull? Uh, except Manano. Manano was, Manano was on, on his knees, I believe. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. all the yeah. other bulls and cows that I've killed have all been kneeling. And I'm going to tell everybody, <clears throat> 95% of my practice is from my knees. Yeah. Because right. I know invariably that's exactly. And I want to tell you something. I'm a better shooter from my knees. Yeah. You know, I, I, I shot mine from my knees. Manano shot his from knees and you guys were both standing up. So yeah. that's yeah. one thing there. And, uh, I want to put this out to you guys, too, that are listening out there is I want you to understand that I have a feeling that this is going to be more than a one part show here. <laughs> so if we you know, we've got a long list of things that we want to tell you that are things to watch out for. And we're going to do that. And if we have to go further, we're going to do this on another show as well. So don't worry about uh, missing out on some things. We really think it's important. We think it's huge that, you know, you're going to like. Gilbert said, you're going to go out and you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have a learning curve. There's going to be some things that we're going to tell you that you're going to forget. And then when you, when you do it and you're going to go, oh, man, you know, but that's okay. That's part of that journey. But hopefully we can get you, you know, get you going on this. And well, I, I just want to say one of the biggest lessons I learned my first uh -huh. time is don't forget your pillow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, man. Really, it, made huh? my, it, it was horrible. I mean, I had to use my daggum backpack to sleep on. It was, no. Look, I had a good bed to sleep in, a great sleeping bag, no pillow. Dude, that was horrible. So do you, you know, carry so. a fleece top at all? I carried all kinds of clothing, Joe. Yeah. And back in the day when Chav and I first started out, and that's what I tell a lot of guys too, is I think one of the big mistakes a lot of guys make as well as they, they they watch a lot of the videos they see a lot of the guys that are out there and they think that they have to have the pack you know the uh certain camo the certain uh everything that they see out there and i i just want to tell you that gear is great i have nothing against it but to be successful in the Elkwoods, you do not need all of that stuff. Do they, Can they make you more comfortable? Trust me, I've been in a situation like Gilbert's talking about where I made pillows out of, you know, my clothes and a, and a fleece top and things like that to be able to sleep on them. And that first night, Gilbert, yeah, you ain't going to sleep matter. that first night probably anyway. Did, probably right? didn't matter the first night, but I can tell you <laughs> I hated it that I didn't – that I, and I tell this to everybody. It's the first thing I send, send to every, don't forget your pillow because it sucks, man. I can – I can, yeah, I can attest to that. The first What the do you first mean trip, you can attest to that, dude? You sleep on like a, like a, a queen-size bed so about I can three feet I, off the ground. Yeah, I and can Manano can sleep on rocks. I can, so what I wanted to say was that I can attest <laughs> to the fact that Gilbert does that he tells oh. everybody because that first trip we made that, that i made with you guys to uh, -huh. uh to to uh, new mexico uh -huh. on on his email that he sent out he had do not forget your pillow in <laughs> capital letters so yes i never have forgotten it because of that Whoa. so <laughs> hated it <laughs> I bring two or three, by some the way. Guys, man, you know, some guys, tomato, some guys, tomato. I am not forgetting my pillow. First thing that goes in the truck, Joe. <laughs> Joe, something, something well, that I've been, I've been thinking about here and with regards to the noise, you know, uh, it, it, could, it could get confusing for somebody that's never bow hunted before, you know, and listening to the podcast or just trying to get information because 
that there are two separate things that may seem conflicted, but they're not. And maybe you guys can explain better, right? Mm, okay. um, so we say, look, with elk, it doesn't matter. You doesn't matter if you make noise approaching. It doesn't matter uh-huh. if you're racking it, wrecking a tree, and so on and so forth. That you're making noise because they're big animals that they make right, noise. Right, that's right. that's one idea. But then on the other side, you've got hey, look, you know, make sure we're silent freaks. You know, right. we don't want to make uh, be squeaking as we're walking. We want to make sure that the clothing that we have is pretty silent, Those and we got good fleas in them. So, you know, somebody that doesn't really understand the functionality of the two may be like, well, what is it then? You know, so yeah, I no, figure a, I'll just pose the question and open it up so we can explain. No, it's a, it's a super question and good way to clear it up because I even tell people sometimes you got to hurry up, slow down. And, right. you know, sometimes you got to be super aggressive and sometimes you got to be really, really, you know, slow, methodical. Yeah. If, if I'm really chasing animals and don't let me, don't let me miss out on exactly what you said by going down a rabbit hole here. But if I'm, if I'm out there and, and we're chasing bugles, man, I mean, buddy, we're covering ground. But if I'm during that midday where I'm just working through a bedding area and I'm trying to kind of still hunt by throwing up some cow calls and being the first one to spot a bull moving in silently before they spot me, then I'm really moving slow at that time. So sometimes it's hurry up and slow down. It just depends on your technique at the time. And if you're using calling to go in on an animal and you're working your setup, you want to do that in a way where I hate to set up in an area where an animal can see for a long ways. Long I want to get in some place where it's thick, where it's tight, where my window of opportunities 30 yards and in that that animal has to clear out. So in that case, when I'm doing that and I'm moving in and I'm moving in thick stuff where I know that I'm screened, I want to be noisy because I'm sounding like a bull coming in. I'm sounding like a bull with cows and I want them to believe that. So I'm putting that noise out there. If I'm if I'm bugling and walking through the woods, I'm making noise because, again, I'm trying to sound like a, a, a herd or a bull that's going right. through, and they make noise. But what you're talking about, Luis, is now I'm in a setup, and let's say I'm solo hunting or even still I'm out front and I've got a partner back in the back that's doing the calling. Well, mm-hmm. I want to be a silent freak buddy because when that bull's coming in, and that bull's at 12 yards, at 15 yards, at 10 yards, or like Manano, at 8 yards. When <laughs> the I, awareness levels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I draw back, everything's magnified. And we're talking about a critter that can hear you bugle from a mile away. You know, yeah. shoot, they can hear a mouse pee on cotton, buddy. So <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I want when I make my draw, I want everything silent right. because I don't want. Now, I will tell you this, though, and guys, listen to this, too, because it's part of the elk behavior. If I draw back and they do hear something, I guarantee you, And that's why you always draw when their kill is in the open, not when it's behind something in their heads you know, there in the open, or if their head is just clearing a tree, you don't want to draw at that point because they're going to freeze with their kill area behind Mm -hmm. a tree. So if they do hear noise, I guarantee you, they're going to stop and turn and look at you. But I don't want any situation. I want to get that clean shot. I want to get it off. If they're walking, I want to be able to draw and have them walk into my window 
right? So that's why I'm a, a, a silent freak. And, I, and I'll tell you the other reason I'm a silent freak is when I am going through the woods, if I am calling, if I am cow calling, or if I'm going through the bedding area and I'm getting, yeah, 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 and I'm sounding sweet, I don't want to hear in my pack. I don't want to hear in my shoes. I don't want to hear anything in my area that's going to distract, well, my, the guys around me from being able to hear anything, right. man. Yeah, you know, sure. if you have all these other noises, it's amazing, especially for somebody like me that has hearing issues. If there's any other ex- external noise within the area around me, it's so hard to pick up on a sound that you hear, just a little grunt, just a little huff, even the end of a high-pitched bugle going off. So I want things around me as quiet and silent as, as possible. Uh, also, and, and those, elk, go ahead. Those, those elk, <clears throat> they they understand noise that sounds familiar, right? Right, I, correct. I was sitting in the deer blind the other day with my son, and I had my phone, and we were videotaping some stuff like that, and a woodpecker was right next to us. Yeah, you on told that story, yeah. Tap, 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 tap. And I said, watch this, Logan, and I went. And I just imitated the woodpecker. Those deer are six feet underneath me. They never even looked up because they hear that sound right, right, every right, day, right? Right. They hear things walking in the woods. They hear things. But when you hear somebody, a, a squeaky shoe. Exactly. So. Power curtain shirt. Oh, man, that'll be a drive them <laughs> or out. Or you have an. You have an arrow that comes off your rest yeah. and a piece of metal or something like that. Yeah. You know, I was going to say it's it's the natural sounds versus right. the yeah. unnatural sounds they're not oh, yeah. used to. Totally. So yeah. those those two things can can be completely different and completely spook an animal if it's not the natural sounds he's used right. to. So the natural sounds you want to quiet and the the right. natural sounds you can get away with. Right. Sure. Yeah, and and remember what I'm saying is we're talking about noise and for animals natural. to hear and yes. noise that keeps us from hearing. From so, yes. Right. And I, I man, I tell you, there's nothing like feeling like you're a breeze in the wind going through the forest, man. When mm-hmm. you're silent like that, when you're you have your camo on and you're being stealthy, it's I don't know, there's just something about it uh, yeah. that just it just rocks my world i just love that i I just love the silent uh nature of it i like when i need to be still that an animal's not able to spot me you know that or hear me or smell me all of those things i'm trying to neutralize right yeah so that's an excellent question Luis. because there's so many times that we we tell people you know, be noisy, be noisy. No, be yeah. quiet, be quiet. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's got to fit the situation. Yeah. It's it's hard. It's hard to grasp. You know, as far as uh, uh, being being new out there, it's like, well, well, you know, what is it? What are the, what are the well, things that? Here, yeah. Here's the other thing I, I want to add to that too. Is it depends on what technique or style you're using at the time. Because if I'm using where I'm calling a bull in and I'm trying to mimic a herd and all of this is coming happening with a setup, that's one thing. But sometimes the best way to get a herd bull sometimes is to spot those animals, see how they are, and put the Mohican sneaking on them and, mm-hmm. you know, go in and get after them and being silent on there. Right. and there's a catch 22 to that too. You just got to really know how to watch these critters because if 
if you're in amongst a group and there's a lot of screening material around, you can actually walk. They can see your legs and you can make noises. And again, it seems natural to them. But if you're in another situation where you're trying to get to a position without them knowing you're there to be able to get them to make a mistake so that you can get a shot on them, then that's when that silence comes in. So you, you, you got to have more than one thing in your bag of tricks, y'all. Definitely. And, and, and Joe, there's another thing that, you know, it's discussed on almost every podcast and, and, and it's, it's, it's a key to, to hunting elk, to hunting deer, to hunting big game. Um, and uh, we talk about wind all the time, you know, and, and look, you, you, you hear about, oh yeah, the wind, the wind, the wind, and then you get out there and then you don't realize really how important the wind is. It doesn't matter how many times we may say it here. Number you, one. You won't realize how important it is until you actually get to live it and get to see how it really impacts your hunt. Well, you know, and I'll give you examples on okay. not just elk, but, um, you know, hunting pigs. Right. Um, I've been in public land to where I've, I've spotted pigs and I feel the wind from the back of my neck going forward and I'm looking at that pig and I'm thinking, oh, that pig is going to be gone. And it's just a matter of seconds and it's right. almost like that pig has hit a brick wall and it turns around Ooh. and it takes off running. You know, they, And so it, it, it's, it's that impactful in your hunt and that, I mean, it has to be considered and kept in your head. Yeah, I'll tell you this right now. If you don't play the wind, you're not going to see any elk. I'm just going to be truthful with you. Sure. You'll think there aren't any there because they get gone. You know, well, I've watched it happen over and, and over and over again. With and there's switching. something else that most of those guys don't, you know, because most bow hunters are wind knowledgeable, sure. right? Sure. Most bow hunters, if if you hunt white-tailed deer, so you're you're going to understand the wind. What they don't understand sometimes and what they're not familiar with is the thermals of the mountains and Good the, the hills. No doubt. Mm-hmm. So that's something that understanding thermals, how they work and how the elk use those thermals are critical to success. If if you have elk down in a bottom and you come up on the top of a ridge and you can hear them screaming down in the bottom. You're like, Oh man, listen to them boogers. Right. And you start heading down at those boogers, those thermals, that cool air that's still falling down that hill is carrying your scent pool right down to them. And you're going to end up blowing them out. So you have to understand how thermals work. You have to understand and that's where something like Onyx is huge, where you can actually see how things are falling through, what the topography looks like, you know, how things are going so that you can actually enter in on those animals from a different direction. If you have, so thermals are the scent rising or falling with the temperature of the air. Cool air falls, warm air rises. Just think of a hot air balloon, y'all, and think about that dry ice, right? And again, we don't have to rehash all of this because we have a podcast on scent. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can go back and listen to that one, but that's just the basics of it. And if you don't understand how thermals work and how wind can bend those thermals, just like, just like 
wind can bend sound. You can have, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, an instrument playing from a faraway park where you have a band or something like that, and you can hear that sound, and the wind will blow, and all of a sudden that sound will get faint, exactly. right? Yep. Yeah. So it's the same type of thing. And, guys, the biggest mistake is you'll think that, man, I've got to close the gap because that animal's right there, and maybe I can get into them without the wind, you know, giving me away. It ain't going to happen. Mm -hmm. You're better off spending another 20 minutes, 30 minutes, finding a different yeah. angle, an hour, find a different angle. Now, that brings me to something else, too. Well, we're going to talk about in the, the database, so I'm not going to bring that up. But a lot of that has to do with understanding whether or not you're hunting animals that are going to a destination or they're yeah. at a, a destination. Yeah, whether they're going up or staying down, right? Correct. Um, and, and look, you know, you're going to find yourself above animals early in the morning because you want to kind of catch them going to and from. And when you're when you're above them and those thermals are falling, if you know they're down there, just try to stay above them parallel. Just stay above them as the, as the warm air starts coming, as the day starts warming those thermals will push to you. And when they do, the animals are going to come to you. So, I mean, you just got to have a little bit of patience. You know? Yeah. You actually have to kind of back off. To, I mean, if they're coming up the hill, the direction that you're going, you actually have to move down the ridge so that That's your right. scent's not going to go down to them. The That's other right. thing that you can do is you can move down the ridge and start right. lowering yourself down to their level, making sure that you're, because your scent's going to fall with that thermal and, I always tell people if the wind is blowing in one direction, so if, if, if those animals are down in front of you, you have a breeze that's going to the right, then what I want to do is I want to head downwind and start heading down that hill and getting even with those animals. I don't want to go straight at them where if the wind stops and my, my scent pool starts going down that they're going to catch that scent. So it's critical, man. Wind and believing in the wind is so huge. I would say that is one of the top mistakes made by people mm -hmm. that come out and hunt in these hills. Yeah, it, it, I agree. I think it's the number one cha most challenging things to understand. Uh, and once you do understand how challenging it is, it will, it will change the way you set up to hunt. You know, I, I want to go to one that I think is, is really going to hit home and this happens for i hear so many talk so many people talking about hunting from trailheads or hunting you know at that that yeah. parking lot at the end of the road as it gets all the way up in there and i i really think that this is a real huge thing and a huge mistake or a pitfall for new hunters that come out here because everybody feels like in order to get away from crowds you got to go as deep in as possible you have to uh you know get to that trailhead and hike back as far in as possible to be able to get away from everybody well <laughs> if everybody's thinking that then i don't know how much you're getting away from people actually now i trust me you are going to get on the weekends, 
Yes, because there's some people who come in on the weekends and they're only going to go in so far, or they're going to hike. I, I got buddies who are going to hike all the way in six, eight miles. They're going to hunt, and then they're going to come back out, you know, and be out of there by the weekend. But I just, I think a big problem is, is everybody goes to that trailhead and then heads in, and everybody goes to that end of that road, and then they want to hike all the way in. I think there are so many elk that are past I think people drive by elk. I think they hike by elk trying to find elk. And I know they do. Yeah, we do. I've, I've do. done it, and, and I've seen it happen firsthand. I killed the biggest bull I ever killed in my life with four-wheelers going by, and you can hear them behind me. Sure. Yep. Yeah. It, it, which brings up another point, too, is that everybody thinks that if people are around, it's going to blow all the elk out of the area. Uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to head back to that one in a second. I just want to make sure that you guys understand. So think about this. If, if you're driving to a trailhead, how many people are doing that? Check out what public land you are driving through already because I can tell you that there are a ton of elk a quarter of a mile to a half mile off a lot of those roads that people are going by and they're down there screaming or they're down there herding up cows. I think that you really need to pay attention, get on and take a look at some of those little hidden areas that everybody else is driving by. And, and your think, packing job is going to be a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think for, I think, I think for first time elk hunters that are going out, I think it's a big mistake personally. This is my personal opinion. If you're really, if you do a lot of backpacking and you do a lot of backcountry hiking, hunting for deer already and stuff like that, and that's something that you're into and you're, you already understand that, you know that you're good at it. It's one thing, but so many of these guys see this happening. They look at all the YouTube videos. They, they look at all the pictures on Instagram, look at all that stuff there. And, and, there's it is it's like a romantic idea that i got to get that pack and i got to hike in eight miles and then i'm gonna start you know getting a bull scream in this beautiful meadow well i think that's a huge mistake for a lot of you guys because first yeah. of all you're you're a first time probably backcountry hunter so now you're having to deal with all the issues that come with hiking in the deal with all the equipment for hiking in and besides the hunting of elk for the first time with a bow as well. So I think you're kind of compounding that. Just my opinion, I think so many guys would be better off if they were truck camping or have a main base camp where they can uh, drive to different areas. And if something is not happening there, then they can go drive to a different area. Still keep that base camp, but they can go yeah. try a different area. They're yeah. more Plan A, B, C, D. Yeah, and, and they make better use of their time because if you go in and you hike all the way back in, man, you're going to use all of that day to get in, to get set up. And now you're hunting in a part of the country that if there's elk there and there's nobody else there, booyah, you're, you're in high cotton. But right. if you're in there and all of a sudden you find that there's a whole bunch of people camped in there or you're in there and you're not finding any sign, you're not finding any critters, now you got to spend all that time. First of all, you're going to think, well, man, am I going to tough it out here? Am I going to invent elk being here? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like get stubborn, right? They you are where I mean? they are. Yeah. Yeah. And here's, here's another thing, too, in my opinion, Joe, that, look, I mean, the, the, the way we hunt, uh, 
you're going to be putting a lot of miles and a lot of work every day regardless. So, right. you know, packing in that far, you know, if not having a base camp and not being able to sleep comfortably, you know, back to the comment of the pillow. I mean, it, try to plan it to where you don't wear yourself out in one, two days where you're just wasted and just can't do this anymore. I mean, you have to make sure you're going to be putting a lot of work every day, but make sure that you have the means to actually rest and then recharge your batteries and have good sleep. Because if you don't, the hunt is not going to be fun. No, slip, slip. Now I'm talking like you. You oh, well, got me, got me it doing happens, it now. It happens, you know. <laughs> <laughs> sleep is critical, man. If it's, and we were talking about this in one of our podcasts, and we're going to be talking about it in the future. We're talking about staying mentally strong, right? Uh, mental fitness. And part of your mental fitness is tied into your physical fitness. And if you're exhausted, if you're tired, it's hard to stay in the game. So I – and the other thing is, is guys, a lot of you guys, especially if you're soloing it, and if you're soloing it back in the back country like that, then you had better have a plan because if you do get a critter, it, that's some work to get them out of there. And I'm not saying you're not able to do it, but are you able to do it in the right amount of time that you don't have meat spoiling on you or, you know, those types of things you have to think about. It's not just necessarily whether you're physically able to do it sometimes, because if you're six miles away from your vehicle to get that animal out of there and you end up with one of those uh, five days like we hit two years ago where, man, it never got at night below 50 degrees at night and the days were so hot, you're putting yourself in a bad position to get that animal out if you don't have a plan, if you're not doing something with a packer, or you have people you can call or something like that. It just, mm -hmm. it's just something, I mean, we're just telling you, these are things that you got to think about there. And that's why I highly recommend for you guys that are going is try to find a situation where you can do a base camp, but you're still mobile. You can get to other areas. If you want, you can pull up camp and you can go to another area. You can drive 20 miles if you have to. Now, we never do that. We, we never pull up and drive 20 miles. We might end up driving another four miles, five miles in a different direction, mm -hmm. hunting where we hunt, but it's just a different style of country where we hunt. It's not, it's not basin country. It's just a yeah. little bit different like that. So, um, you, you made a comment while you were talking about public land and, mm -hmm. and you know, um, driving by elk to hunt elk and, 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 you made a comment about people and other hunters being in the area mm -hmm. that kind of resonated with me because where we hunt, it, you know, it, it's a high trafficked area and, and we do bump into, into other hunters all the oh, time. All and, the time. So that I actually had an experience um, last or this, this year, uh, this past year where we hunted uh, and I was with Manano and Brendan and Call in, call in another hunter. I mean, sure. actually, the other hunter called us in because we were trying to kind of, we started that battle of like, no, I'm, I'm the bull. I want you to come in. And he was like, no, I'm the bull. I want you to come in. And we got close enough to a spot to where none of us were giving in, you know. And then <laughs> Brendan finally saw the other hunters, and uh, they probably knew I was a hunter because of the cat sound. <laughs> it's highly uh, possible. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I heard so, it, man. You were doing a good especially job. Especially when you he got aggravated. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, but but the, the the thing the thing was that once we realized they were hunters, mm-hmm. we actually didn't make eye con- I they didn't make eye contact with us at the moment. They I don't think they even saw us. So we regrouped right. and we said, you know what? Let's just leave them there and let's just turn around and then we'll just kind of walk away and try. And it wasn't. 150, 200 yards when right. we heard another bull. And right. then we were actually able to call that bull in and, you know, with two, three shots opportunities at it, you right. know, and this is, I was like, okay, these guys, these hunters are right here and 200 yards away, walking away from the hunters. We bump into elk. I mean, so. So there's multiple things that could have happened right there too. When you think about it. Yeah. At first, you know, when you guys leave off, and if these guys are going, oh yeah, maybe these were hunters, and then they hear the another wanted, bull, you the go bulls wanted to like, come in and check it out. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, those clowns, man. They just keep sounding off there. They, you know, it was a real bull, and they never even checked it out. And I've even seen this where it only takes 400 yards, it only takes 800 yards from other hunters and they're not able to hear them because of the denseness of the trees and the different, and you were in position where you could hear it. and you're going, man, how do they not hear this going I on? Happened to you and I this year, Joe. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. saw yeah. that young man and, and his dad and he wasn't 250 yards later. We're smack dab in the middle of five bulls. And, that, and that's huge. I mean, that that's really yeah. one pitfall, one mistake people think is that if there's hunters in the area, if they go and they see a hunter, well, psh, oh, my day's blown. There ain't going to be no elk in here. Look, there's a hunter right here. And it has happened. I'm not able to tell you how many times I have left hunters that have said, I haven't heard anything. I haven't seen anything. And I've called in a bull and shot Plus a bull. Two. Yeah, <laughs> or two. Not a half mile. You don't need to from, come back here. <laughs> not even a half mile from where those people were. Like you said, you know, you shot a bull and you could hear four wheelers going by. You know, you look, y'all, just because you come across another hunter, these elk are adaptable as heck. And we talk about high use areas and low use areas. And it depends on the makeup of the situation. Now, if you're hunting in an area that is like a, a a basin or a bowl and there's some animals down in the bottom of it and guys come over the top and they end up sending that up and blowing those animals up. Well, yeah, those animals might go out of that basin and go up on that ridge and just go on the other side, one third down. So that doesn't mean that the animals are total. They haven't run to the next county. I guarantee you they've gone where they feel safe. They've stopped. They're listening. They're smelling. They're looking. And once they realize that danger is no longer with them, they're going to go the direction that they want to go. You got to know what time of year it is too, Joe. If you're bow hunting in the middle of the rut, they got a little bit less caution to the wind, right? I mean, they are actively seeking females. and. They are going to walk through some stuff that they probably not going to continue to walk through as they are pursuing uh, the breeding season, right? So wherever those cows go, they're going to follow. And uh, if those cows are pushed in a direction, you know, and it happens in a matter of seconds, they cover a mile in, you know, minutes and, uh, and then they're, they're in your lap. You know, well, and what those animals do, Gilbert, is is they they might not be going nose to wind to get right. close to where they 
believe uh, uh, other elk are or other right. cows are. And then once they start getting in the vicinity, they start circling so that they can scent check yep. and verify what, you know, what's going on with that herd. If there's other bulls, if there's a cow in heat. So you're right. I mean, uh, you know in, what in time a, of year you're yeah, in. Yeah. Those animals are going to go the direction they, that they are. And, but, you know, we've even we start, had hunters push, push, you know, push herds to us. Sure. You know, they're, they're driving them, calling below them. Those bulls are hooking those cows up and moving them out of there, you know, right. And, sure. and all of a sudden now they're in your lap, you yep. know, so I, you know, I have mixed emotions about, uh, high traffic areas, but I've killed a lot of really good elk in them. Well, and that's the thing is, is what I wanted to tell you is, you know, a lot of people that they go hiking way back trying to get away from, and they think they're in low use areas, you know, that, that state has so many hikers, so many outdoors people that I guarantee you those, those elk up there in that high country have been seeing a lot of people go through. So uh, that's just something for you to think about. Y'all, what we're going to have to do now is we're going to come back to this again. We're going to continue this on a part two. We're going to continue that next week so that you can hear that. We want to make sure that uh, we go to our EBD segment, our elk behavior database, because that's something that we told you we want to do to help our listeners start growing their elk knowledge, their elk behavior knowledge. And we think this is critical for some of the decisions that you make during a hunt. And some of this we've actually just talked about. So today's topic, guys, is travel habits of the elk. And... It's so funny because it starts out right away at the top. It starts out with in travel habits that wind and thermals dictate where and when elk move. Okay. And like we said, guys, we're not going to rehash all of that. Uh, We have a whole podcast on scent and thermals. You can go back and look through. Uh, we have one all about camo. We have one on scent. We have one on shot placement. So there's plenty out there for you to, to, uh, to check out, but those wind and thermals do dictate where and when, and and we're going to explain what we mean by that. And I just about jumped into this before we got here. And here's what you got to remember: is what's the job of an elk? You know, survive. to survive, <laughs> right? Exactly. And th- they're good at it. It is their it's their house. They understand it. They know it. Uh, they know, you know, where they moved the furniture, where they didn't, where they, you know, left their purse. They got it all figured out, man. Yeah. And their job is to survive. They want to survive from, you know, uh, from morning to night to the next morning. So their movements, everything that they do is based on that principle. Uh, and that's why thermals and wind are so critical because an elk, like we said, we constantly saying it. You can get by the ears. You can sometimes get by them eyes, but you're not going to get by that nose. Never. All right. Mm. Now, we have said, and if you start listening to our scent, we have said that you can muddy the water a little bit with yeah. that scent. And and go listen to our podcast on scent to understand what we're talking about. But I can tell you this. Their priority is survival. They need food. They need water. They need Shelter, yeah, they need they seclusion, safety, right? Huh? Yeah, they are slaves to their bellies, number one. They got to survive. They got to eat. Got to eat. Got to drink, man. Yeah. They have to drink. They uh, they drink so much during the day. Uh, 
but it's lucky for us that in September, Bulls priorities change to their number one priority. The Bulls' yep. number one priority is breeding, yep. right? Now, luckily, it's funny. The thing that causes them to get killed is the thing that a lot of times saves them, and that's the cows. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> because those yep. cows are still wanting to survive. They're still wanting to eat. They're still wanting to, to stay safe, right? So um, that lead cow. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not the bull that determines where that herd goes. That's now, right. he might be herding his cows. He might be keeping them together, scent checking, working them back and forth. But he does not determine. They'll t he'll tell them, get out of here. He'll start hooking some and say, let's get out of here, man. I, I want us out of here. But it is the lead cow. It's the cows that determine where they go, not the bull. That bull is going to trail the herd. That bull is scent checking. If you guys realize that whatever you do, whatever you're sounding like, if you're sounding like a bull, if you're sounding like cows, if you're sounding like a herd, any elk that's going to come into you is going to circle to the downwind side. And if you understand that concept and you get in position with that concept, you're going to get a better shot at these animals. Or if you know how to throw your calls in a direction, okay? It's going to help you. And Luis, that was something that you got to experience. It was so cool. We got to do that firsthand with you uh, the last couple of years where we would actually have people out. We'd throw calls off of trees and get bulls to come in. And, and so you got to understand that firsthand, right? Yeah. Uh, is this the year you were teaching me uh, to call down at that park? Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. The first time, The first time I started calling with you for sure. And um, I, I remember we were kind of sitting down. Uh, it was kind of getting dark, and it was just an exercise to call in bulls and and started started using the call, and then started listening to him to them. You know, you go back, and that was super exciting. And before we knew it, they were just super close to where we were, and and then we just simply backed out of there and just let them be. You know, and then came back came back next day. But yeah, uh, pretty cool experience, right? Yeah. Right. It was it was definitely what triggered the desire to learn how to cat call. There was an <laughs> article in the paper the next day of this trail of house cats from around <laughs> the area that we hunt. They have this aerial photo of this trail of these house. <laughs> no man you did a good job you you were coming along and it was so funny i remember the first time i told you i looked at you and said all right man start calling you're like really me i mean it was just like somebody told you batter up man for the yeah. first time you, you know, know and and, and i gotta say to i gotta yeah. say this is it's intimidating because it's different it's different that you're inside your car or right. in the house, yeah. and you have that, that diaphragm in your mouth, and you're just making noises and try to kind of get the right pitch, and then you have several opportunities at it, and then you're like, eh, 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 until you kind of feel that you get the right pitch, mm -hmm. uh, then, okay, now we're on, out in the woods. It's, it's almost like you get stage frozen right. you yeah, know it's right. like yeah. everybody all the animals are listening now and like <laughs> what are you gonna say you know and and how are you gonna say it and then it's like oh really and then sure enough that first call comes out like rawr, 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 all weird man and then you kind of have to do it a few times until it feels a little better yeah. so it it honestly for me at least for me it 
it's been a process of a couple of years of feeling more and more comfortable out on the woods, throwing out calls. Well, it's understanding the language. Mindful of it. Yeah, it's understanding the language too. I mean, when you were learning English, it's the same thing. You could understand what was being said, but making the sounds just Mm -hmm. eclipsed you at times, right? Right. Yeah. So at the end of the day, it's the same thing for us. It's about. For me, it was about understanding the language. I could mimic the sounds, right? I can imitate the sound, but when do you make that sound? Right, right. 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 Understanding the language of the elk was more important for me than just making the sound, right? That's a great analogy. We're going to hit that in one of our EBD series when we start talking about languages, especially when these guys start getting ready and trying to understand and work in their calls. So uh, as far as travel goes too, guys, there's one thing that you got to understand. Elk are either moving to a destination or they're at a destination, okay? And most hunters, a lot of times, you guys call and you hear the bull answer. And then, you know, you start going in on the animal or what I call closing the gap. You give another call and all of a sudden it sounds like the bull's further away again. <laughs> and then so you start chasing and you give a call and he's further away. And most hunters right away going, oh, man, he's... He's, he's running away from me. You know, he's, he's, got, he's got his cows and he's chasing his cows away from me. Well, not necessarily. Now, if I was down in the evening in a park and there was an elk coming in and I started to call and, they, and he started going up a hill or something in the evening when he should be coming down, then I might think that. But mm-hmm. most of the time, guys, it's just that bull is following those cows to a destination. They're heading up. They're going to get to their beds. Uh, they're heading to a water and then going to their beds. They are just moving to a destination. So sometimes it's pretty hard to pull a bull off unless you can get up so that you're parallel to them. And let me tell you, they can move up them hills a lot faster than you can, so it, it can be pretty hard. But if you will just stick with them puppies, keep listening, you can shut up and just keep moving up, moving up to the parallel of them off to the side so that when those thermals change, it's not going up to them. And wait till they get to a destination, yeah. all right? It's easier to hunt or call in a bull at a destination than when they're going to a destination, <laughs> So if they're down feeding in a park, they're at a destination. If they're at a water hole, uh, then they're at a destination. Now, they're not going to be at that water hole very long. That's one of them, you know, I'm in and out type things a lot of times. But uh, or if they're in their bedding area at midday and a bull has bedded down his cows, they're in a destination. And now you're in high cotton if you're in position when they have bedded down. Uh, So it's easier to hunt and call in a bull at a destination. Now, that's a a feed area, a bedding area, or water, all right? And remember, elk are going to bed high in the day. Why? Why, Luis, are are they going to bed high in the day? They got uh, better visibility. They had a higher spot, and they they the thermals, the thermals are, are working in their favor, so they can smell people coming up or anything it, coming up, predators coming exactly up. Exactly why, man. It's it's those thermals because they're going to smell you before they see you. Okay, and that's why they're down feeding low, and they're in those open parks at night because now they've got some vision there, and they have all those thermals coming down to them if something tries to come to them 
you know, tries to get it on them from the sides. So they're going to bed high in the day and they're going to bed in the low open areas at night. It's guys. Remember, it's all about survival. Okay. And if you're in the type of area where it's just kind of rolling hills, you got to think about that too. Again, they're going to put themselves in a position where they get the best winds and thermals to warn them. If, if there's, if it's a type of bowl that swirls, they live there. They understand that. So you have to really, man, your scent checker, boom, 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 boom. You got to be using it all the time when they're on the move. In the morning, they're going to go from low to high. They're going to go from their night bed to feed and water to their day bed. Okay? And they're going to bed down on a bench or a timbered slope, a ridge, or a rise on the north-northeast facing topography. And I don't want to say the north-northeast ridge because there's little canyons in places where you can have that that cover that thick cover inside just little uh little areas and in, in our area we have ravines real deep ravines that cut through and it's not a it's not a high slope but they'll bed down in those ravines down there because they'll they'll catch the scent of anything that comes into the bottom of that ravine so yeah it's cooler they got a lot more shade yeah sure do down in there so you it you just think about that it's all about topography and when they do bed it's like we said it's about a third from the top up there approximately midday rutting bulls will use midday as an opportunity to water wallow and feed so once they have and this is during the rut once they have those cows of theirs bedded down then they know where they're man if you turkey hunt it's a lot like hunting turkeys you know Best time to pull up a gobbler is when those when those hens have gone uh, to set the ne- set the nest, right? Or set the eggs, right? right? That's yeah. right. That's when those gobblers go off, start looking for another hen, yep. and it's the same same with these bulls. All right, and in the evening they're going to go from high to low. They're going to go from their day bed to the feed water to the night bed, and it's just that simple. That's their travel habits if you can find their corridors from where those bedding areas what we call bedrooms to where those feed areas are and y'all understand that feed areas are not always the open parks there's transition areas any area where there's a break in the canopy or there's thin topped trees where grasses can grow underneath those are those transitions with acorns and oak brush. Oh, heck yeah. You like that stuff, man. Pinon pine. They like yep. those. If if you get pinons going a year, juniper berries there, yep. you know, check for the food there. And uh, uh, so that is our EBD, Elk Behavior Database Tip for the day. Unbelievable content from all of the different topics that we've covered. It's been a plethora of things, Joe. Um, You know, again, we want to tell our listeners, if you like what we're doing, subscribe, rate, and review. Go to Apple Podcasts or on iTunes, review. You can check out more elk hunting content at elkbros.com. You can send us your questions to be talked about as well at info at elkbros.com. You know, I want to thank Luis for joining us tonight, Joe, and uh, look forward to having more of our our, uh, our Venezuelan (laughs) mafia boys with us uh, on the podcast. 
yeah. is uh, awesome to have you, Luis. Thank you very much. No, yeah. it's it, it. You guys know it's an honor for me to um, be able to participate in these with you guys. I mean, you guys have been our our teachers, our mentors, our masters, our silverbacks, as, and, <laughs> and uh, our guys through all this amazing journey of learning how to hunt this majestic animal. So, thank you for the space and thank uh, you for the opportunity. Well, and I, I want everybody to see and understand that our Elk Bros group, uh, we're pretty diverse. We're from all different areas, all different backgrounds, all different race, religions. Uh, and, you know, one of our brothers are, still aren't with us here. Uh, Chav, always, this one's for you. Amen, uh, brother. He's, he's getting stronger and better and uh, um, went through round four chemo. I just want to, you know... Uh, Say hello to my brother out there, and Luis. Thanks for for filling in there, and and I thought uh, you did a great job, bud. It's uh, it's really cool to have some of those questions and some of those thoughts. I, I think they were very very enlightening, and you you got to be back for us as long as we're doing this one right here. So uh, set some time aside, and we'll get you back the next time as well. And uh, and and we're going to, to go to part. Yeah. Guys, we'll give you part two the next time. That sounds good, Joe. As as I've always said, you know, we want to keep Chav in our prayers. We appreciate all the prayers and all the good thoughts and well wishes. He's getting stronger by the day. Uh, we look forward to having our brother back with us. For Joe in New Mexico, our Venezuelan mafia brother there in H-Town, I'm Gilbert Ornelas, the host of your show. As I say always, husbands, hug your wives and kiss them. Wives, kiss your husbands. Y'all keep your broad head sharp and your powder dry. And we'll see you next week right here on Blue Collar Elk Hunt. Peace, peace, y'all. Thank you.